Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Navara FM, brought to you by Navara Media and broadcast live on Resonance 104.4 FM, consistently the best and most stimulating radio station in London. I'm James Butler, a still point in the rapidly turning world, and I will be your host for the next hour. No politics without inquiry, so wrote Ed Emery, one of the foremost translators and advocates of Italian workerism and post-workerism, Operaismo, back in 1995 as part of a call to take up the spirit and method of workers' inquiry. Joining me today to talk about the meaning of workers' inquiry and its relation to current workers' struggle are three of the editors from Notes from Below, a project which aims to take up and expand those methods of inquiry, publishing studies in workers' struggle, as well as updates and bulletins from current and ongoing struggles. The three editors in the studio today are Jessica Thorne, a part-time MA student in history by day and part-time retail worker by night. Callum Can, whose PhD work focuses on strike action in the UK. And you can also find fronting up our most recent video on the UCU strike at navaramedia.com. And Seth Wheeler, founding member of Plan C, now departed, and founding member of the CIG. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. Uh, Before we jump in, just a word on the ongoing UCU strikes, which we'll come back to today in the course of our discussions. The strike involving lecturers, administrative and support staff at a number of universities has continued this week after a surge in grassroots organisation pressured the union leadership uh, to reject a gutting compromise proposed by UUK, the body with which they're in dispute. The latest initiative circulating on social media this morning calls on academics to resign their positions as external examiners as the union begins to plan another strike wave. It's not too much to say that the strength of this strike has been entirely unexpected in a field that's often a bit sleepy and unwilling to undertake confrontation. Uh, And that has a lot to tell us about the current moment. So solidarity with the strikers and we'll doubtless come back to discuss it in the course of this show. Uh, Before we jump into the question of workers' inquiry... Does one of you want to introduce uh, the project, the Notes from Below project? Yes, yeah, sure. So, um, so Notes from Below is the, the journal of the Class Inquiry Group, which is basically five or six of us currently, who are obviously all committed to socialism, by which we mean the self-emancipation of the working class from capitalism and the state, for any of you Corbynistas out there. <laughs> um, so to this end, we use the method of the workers' inquiry um, and we draw our methods and our theory from that tradition, the class composition tradition, which seeks to understand and change the world from the workers' point of view. So we're, we under, we've undertaken this project because we want to ground revolutionary politics back into the perspective of the working class, which... We could argue for a long time it hasn't really been in the, in the hefty wells of academia. And we also want to help circulate and develop workers' struggles and also build working-class confidence to take action by and for themselves. Good. Uh, so I want to jump in and, and, and start thinking about this, this thing, this workers' inquiry. Uh, and this is... It has a kind of long and, and sort of storied history on the left. I want to start by talking about its origins, which which begin in a series of questions, a kind of a, a, about 100 questions. <laughs> it's 101. 101 yeah. questions, um, which were issued, issued um, by the terrible grandfather Karl Marx <laughs> to La Revue Socialiste in 1880. Uh, and, it, it, you know, it was this, this huge kind of and, 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 and very expansive uh, series of questions which were looking, which seemed to look not just at, at the question of work itself, so the, the, the kind of technical composition mm. of work as experienced by workers, but beyond that as well. Uh, Jess, tell me a bit more about that. Yeah, of course. I think, I think it's really 
useful to isolate this 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 study that Marx um, does in the, in this as you said this French socialist newspaper. Um, and there's things in there that are totally expected of Marx, right? So you see, you know, he asks questions like state the details as to the division of labour in your factory. Um, do employers submit to laws regarding ch- child labour? law regulations but then you see kind of he's thinking about work beyond the workplace and what goes into the labor process beyond the immediacy of the the workplace so he asks questions like are water streams are water streams used as motive power what is your what is your workshop lit by is that gas oil or some other kind of substance um what are the prices of necessary commodities for example you know, rent of your lodgings, conditions of lease, number of rooms, persons living in them. He also asked questions about food, what are the price of food, uh, clothing and taxes. So he's really trying to put forward this really comprehensive analysis of capitalism that, is, that exists and affects us beyond the immediacy of the workplace. No one responds. <laughs> it's, it's worth glori- noting no one was yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's gloriously nerdy, right? It's, it's not marks of the categories in, in capital. It's marks very much looking at the actual historical reality of capitalism and, and trying to make an influence on that. Um, I think it's also really interesting to compare this inquiry with Engels, obviously, condition of the working class in England, which, you know, has erroneously sometimes been linked to the workers' inquiry tradition, but I think is quite importantly different. So if you look at Engels' preface to that, it's all about, you know, we want to appeal to the better nature of the bourgeoisie, we're kind of making a moral appeal on half of the working class, right? Whereas Marx in the inquiry has this beautiful phrase, you know, this is the class to whom the future belongs. Mm. And it's really, for the first time, you know, it goes beyond what he does in the the chapter of Capital on the Working Day and actually starts to look at the working class's agency in understanding their own conditions. Um, And it's no coincidence that it also comes after the Paris Commune, where Marx for the first time really starts to understand, well, you know, the working class can work out their own political forms for their emancipation, right? Um, and at a point, I mean, he goes back and revises, or in the preface to the second German edition of the Communist Manifesto, explicitly says, you know, the working class is superseding my theory. And here, right at the end of Marx's life, you see him going, well, if the working class is superseding my theory, maybe I need to actually ask them some questions and work out what's going on in their lives. So it, it starts with this kind of really granular and attentive uh, form of inquiry and I think it's quite important to as sort of Seth noted there that actually we don't have a record of any responses to it he probably didn't get any I mean his you know and, and it's structured such that you know he, he felt perhaps that he would be responding to all of these kind of mm. questions as they came in maybe issuing some direction as well but this desire for a, you know an exact and positive knowledge of the conditions in which the working class the class to whom the future belongs works and moves so so this real sense that the agency is going to be here rather than uh, top down and rather from, uh, you know, political direction, uh, that it emerges from the actual practice and experience uh, mm. of work in yeah. particular. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and the centrality of work, I think, is important. Mm. And then it disappears. It disappears for a while, um, for, for a few decades. <laughs> um, and I think probably the, the, the group that takes it up next is probably an American group called the Johnson Forest Tendency. Mm-hmm. Don't often get discussed, I think, in, in the Anglophone world, although they should. Uh, I don't know if any of you have anything to say on them. I find them quite interesting. Yeah, and CLR James. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, interesting. Their, their major form is kind of narrative, mm, right? So I think it's yeah. worth picking up that it becomes kind of a, a literary... Uh, there's a real transformation, right? From Marx's exact questioning, it goes to, like, tell us the story of your work um, mm. in a very, like... 
a literary manner, which is, which is a notable generic change, and I think is an attempt to solve the problem of no answers to the first one, right? So there's this consistent problem that comes up again and again in this stuff, which is like the problem of worker participation or the problem of worker writing, where actually the class to whom the future belongs is not the class that wants to write everything down, right? Um, and I think the Johnson Forest tendency innovate and attempt to produce a solution. I also think, um, you know, we have to, like, you know, historicise and contextualise when they're sort of, like, you know, attempting these sort of, like, workers' in inquiries or whatever. This is really before um, sort of bourgeois sociology is being railed out massively, right? And I think, you know, in the Italian context, at least, we can argue that, you know, the workers' inquiry or the methodology around that is an attempt to wrestle, bra wrestle back sociology that's being used to discipline and control workers' lives, right? So... Yeah, the, I mean, yeah. so one of the things that I guess is interesting about the American one is is that narrative form and the the encouragement of people to uh, keep diaries of their yeah. experiences, um, and so that transformation does seem to me interesting. I mean, I think it's also linked to the kind of papers that they were producing at the time, so the output that, that mm. this group was producing, you know, with this kind of very very kind of clear division, you know, for you know, in the paper for for factory workers, but also black people, young people, mm. women. And so this awareness that actually the lived experience of class it isn't actually reducible as the way it sometimes it sometimes gets reduced. Yeah. So so here there's this kind of this awareness that maybe by doing this you can draw together what seem to be particular into kind of universal experiences or, or sympathetic mm. experiences between the segment of the class. So this kind of like reflexive Ethnography, almost, mm. of class, I think, is is, is really fascinating. Mm. Um, so, Socialisme ou Barbarie, French group, pick it up and they're very excited by it. Um, you know, and, and for them, they want to develop this idea that, that socialism is going to emerge from the activity of the class rather than be imposed mm. on them. And then Italy happens. Tell me about Italy. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> well, there's a, an it's a country in the Mediterranean. <laughs> so, uh, there's an interesting... Alberto Toscano, I think, is quoted in an upcoming Steve Wright thing, saying, never has one political moment been so increasingly and, like, detailed study been conducted. Um, so Operaismo is obviously a very diverse experience. There's lots going on in it, and from the, right from its origins, it's fractured. Um, but really, the kind of the first inquiry which defines the period is the 19, 1960 to 61 inquiry at FIAT, mm. um, where a group of workers uh, are brought into conversation with a group of sociologists, which who are themselves internally divided between the interventionists and the sociologists. Um, and out of that experience springs this understanding that inquiry, a really granular understanding of work, can produce political impacts. Um, so really, from that point onwards, there's the development of inquiries on a mass scale. So from there, you go to, you know, Porto Marghera, which is across near Venice and a number of places. And the method generalises throughout Italy. I think it's also worth noting that, you know, for, for listeners who may not understand the history of Italian the Italian communist movement, although I expect most listeners probably will and probably correct me because I'll get most of this wrong. It is called Navarro. But, yeah. but um, yeah, I mean, obviously, the, the Italian working class had two of the largest workers' parties in Europe at the time. So you had, like, the, the PCI and the PSI, the Communist and Socialist Parties. And I think, you know, the, these initial inquiries were also attempts to try and comprehend struggle that was emerging outside of the discipline of the party. Yeah. And, you know, I, I would 
I would argue that if you're an Italian worker in the, you know, working in the sort of big factories of the north, the industrial north in the, in the 1960s, 50s, 60s or whatever, your whole life would have been, as Paul Mason said, the union form of life. You know, you would have gone to work and in the evening you would have gone to the union bar. Um, if you're in a, some sort of like heteronormative relationship or whatever, your wife would have been in the sort of union study group, etc. blah, 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 blah. And I think it was an attempt to wrestle and comprehend where these struggles were emerging, which they couldn't find answers for. Yeah, and this is where, the, if you take two particular figures, like Panzieri and Alquati, right, you've got, uh, without Panzieri, someone who wants to use the workers' inquiry to link the trade unions and the PSI, the Socialist Party, back to the working class. So he begins with the institutions and then wants to go down to the working class and understand, you know, why are these workers, what, what motivates them, how could we make the party stronger, and so on and so forth. And then with Alquati, you have this interventionist model of wanting to organise the class for itself, right? And Alquati, to, to his credit, has this constant focus on methods from below, right, and this idea of co-research, whereby there is an absolute unity between revolutionary politics and revolutionary research, right? Um, and Reiser, who's around at the time, brings up this characterization of from above and from below. And so for him, the sociologists, of which he was one, is uh, kind of use sociological methods to go down and see how the class are doing and then bring the insights back up. Uh, for Alquati and for the, 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 the interventionist tradition which, in which I think we stand, you've got research that is also, at the same time, revolutionary politics. Yeah, I mean, I think that the Italian context is obviously really important and it is kind of, it is really the motor towards all of this kind of thought. But I think, you know, it's not on its own at this point. Like, we have to remember that in 1963, you have the publication of The Making of the English Working Class by E.P. Thompson. He's also thinking in terms of very similar frameworks. So he's thinking, you know, about class struggle, where, you know, where class struggle begins you know, from the point of the working class, not from the point of capital, which in previous interpretations of Marx, they've kind of put, you know, the, the different stages views of capital as kind of primary. And then the working class respond to that defensively. They're always on the defensive and, and through that sort of dialectic response, we, we move forwards. Um, and I think Thompson at the same time is, is, is thinking along very similar lines, um, but kind of from more historical perspective. But he's just as much, I think, interested in sort of the similar sociological debates, you know, kind of not getting too caught up in the distinctions between objectivity and subjectivity and recognising that objectivity, you know, isn't taking you know, an equidistant position between two points and also that you can you can be embedded in your area of research. You can you can go into workplaces or you can be a worker and conduct, you know, inquiries in your own workplace and and you will get some kind of truth out of that. Right. So th these things seem to me really important in this whole tradition. One is the question of standpoint, right? Mm. Which occurs again and again. <clears throat> You know, this recognition that actually the question of kind of an objective social science, you know, when it comes yeah. to, to, to its actual execution is, is really problematic. Mm. Um, I mean, especially here and in the Italian context specifically, one of the things that's emerging is a resistance to the use of sociology by management to impose these kind of increasingly mm. uh, complex regimes of exploitation. Taylorism uh, was always premised on a certain kind of research. Right? Mm, so, mm. so Taylor's management at the factory began from the fact that workers refuse because they know more about the workplace than we do. We need to find out about the workplace so that we can go in and stop them slacking off, right? We need to find the, the hidden moments in the day where they're actually just sitting on their ass. <laughs> Tell me more about co-research, because this is an extremely interesting and important notion, I think, that emerges in Italy, but, but is taken up beyond Italy as well. Well, I think co-research... Yeah, so... 
co-research being conducted by people who self-define as revolutionaries, right, who, who fundamentally believe that there's only one class that matter, i.e. the working class, which I completely hold, to, mm-hmm. hold dear to. I believe the other two classes cannot exist without us. We are the only class that matter. We will inherit history. <laughs> right? um, so I think if you're conducting that research from that, i.e. You're, you're partisan, right, and you, yeah, and you, and you have to be. So, yeah, any sort of pretenses towards sort of objectivity is obviously ridiculous. But also there's a recognition of the imposition of revolutionary ideas external of working class experience. And I think what they want to do is try and capture those resistances, those organic forms of resistance which emerge, which cannot often be adequately explained away just by theory, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that's its premise, but also a recognition to give power to the class in and of itself to give a voice to the class who are so often ignored in sort of like Marxist histories or, or you know, Marxist writing. And there's this interesting idea. I mean, there's lots of subdivisions within Operaismo, obviously, but for Tronti, this idea of coordinating these moments of the refusal of work into a strategy of refusal, I think, is one of the most fascinating, where you say, you know, first off, we want to find the actual practice of the working class, and then we want to coordinate that against the capitalist class, right? Rather than saying, we start out with a conception of working class politics. If the working class is doing something else, that is not working class politics. You start primarily with what's going on. And I think for us, our notes from below, like a lot of our methodology in terms of attempting to engage in co-research is the production of things like bulletins, right? Mm -hmm. Where you are... So this university strike, we've now had, Mm -hmm. I think, like six editions of the bulletin, which are basically premised on, like, we're going to hand out thousands of these on the picket lines and talk to workers about them. And as workers are contributing ideas back, we're going to write them up and put them out in another bulletin. And in that sense, you know, there's an attempt to actively engage in producing a rank-and-file subjectivity around what is an incredibly significant strike. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell me a bit more about Notes from Below and the kind of project that you're undertaking here as kind of inheritors of this tradition. Where does it come from? Frustration, primarily. (laughs) (laughs) It comes from, I think, a frustration with the incapacity of the left to often connect with the actual reality of what's going on in Mm -hmm. the world. So obviously we we prioritise this notion of class composition, the organisation of the working class within society and within work. And... I think at the moment, most forms of left organisation have vanishingly little connection with that actually real form of organisation. How many people on the left could describe to you the work patterns of 90% of the working class? You know, would they be able to understand how, for instance, the supermarket works or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I mean, I think for a long time that the left has really become used to, to sloganeering based mainly on, on theoretical readings, which for a long time have, you know, their responses to, to, to class struggle, but they're not necessarily... There is a certain disconnect in them, I think. Um, and I think... I mean, Callum's absolutely right. If you ask most people on the left, you know, what are, you know what's the working routine of a supermarket worker, they, they, they wouldn't know. And I think we, we, the, the, the motivation for this project is, is basically recognising that... In terms of understanding where workers are composing themselves at the present moment, actually capital and the state knows far more about us than than people on the left do. Yeah. Um, and this is why this process of, you know, this, this workers' inquiry is so important. Um, I mean, yeah, capitalism knows it. The state knows it. Um, the left also knows it to a certain extent. It's just, it, it takes, it's hard work to, to go into workplaces and organise them. It's much harder than you know, campaigning at present for momentum or things like that, which are valid. You know, I'm not saying they're not valuable projects, but it's a different kind of work and it's much harder and it's less rewarding. It, it, it's straight up less rewarding, but it's nonetheless important, I think. I also think, like, if there was a larger political project to Notes From Below, then it has, like, three schemas, right? 
So the first is to build CADA inside workplaces and communities. So literally to fight on what we could describe as meat and bone issues. So like wages, hours, rent, conditions, etc. But obviously we don't want to limit the politics of these you know, to just the just the achievement of those demands alone, right? I mean, there's loads of unions who already do that, right? So I think the idea of producing bulletins is not only to, like, have this sort of reflective capacity, but also to push forward the idea of a world outside of capital, to raise class consciousness, to build political confidence of workers to agitate in their workplaces and their communities. Now, obviously, the second schema, the second part of this overarching plan is to take seriously and discuss the practicalities of organising and running society for the benefit of the working class and the working class alone, right? Now, and I think that's quite a serious thing for us to actually do. Very little people actually really sit down and think, well, how the hell am I going to run Hackney, etc., right? <laughs> Not that you want to, probably. <laughs> uh, I hate London. Um, and then three, and uh, you know, is to establish a network of militants or organic leadership who are ready to exploit situations for class advantage. So to identify, coordinate comrades who will be ready to fight power or fight for power if the opportunity favourably presents itself. And I think, actually, if you look at the history of, like, revolution... So, for example, I think this is the methodology that's deployed by both, both the Bolsheviks and the CNT... Obviously, the political differences between those are immense, but I think this is literally like a schema, a, strat- a strategic set of, you know, mm. a- an outlay. And this is our roll of the dice, and I think this is what we need to do. We need to work on these on these terrains, build working-class confidence, but also recognise that usually revolution happens external of these events. It's usually a crisis somewhere else, yeah. but if you have not identified those people and brought them together, it ain't going to happen. And so also- this is a call for people to take this stuff seriously, you know, like, and we're, we're heading towards a social crisis now, I mean, right? Like, you look at this stuff around Russia, you know, we've, we've skirted Corbynism a few times here, but it does at least seem possible, probably, you know, over 50%, that, that we will have a meaningfully, to some degree, socialist government in the UK. Now, you can imagine capital's response to this, right? Um, and I think often within the Corbynist project, there's a refusal to admit that that will be a social crisis, mm-hmm. right? That's not going to be pretty. It's going to be like when, you know, Allende, they had lorry strikes, but they weren't lorry strikes called by lorry drivers. They were called by the owners of capital, right? And if you had that in the UK right now, what would you actually see in response? You've got 500,000 party members. Do they know each other? Do they know how to coordinate things in their workplaces? The CNT used to have barrio committees in Barcelona, right? So these are 10-person mm, committees yeah. that, you know, insane jobs, like, you know, one person to look for weapons, one person to round up, you know, the police chief in the area, this kind of stuff. Good tragedy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, com- that comes from that. There's a book called Ready for, Le- Ready for Revolution. which was published last year, year before. A while ago, um, I don't know republished um it was basically it's looking at like the, the cnt's preparation for revolution in, in, in 36 and it's, it's really like a remarkable story you have basically a, a group of, of 10 people um looking at each industry each sector and i ident- and identifying like cadre um and organic leaders in the workplace and from that you know they're able to organize up to you know a million I mean, it's really striking the workers. degree of confidence yeah. that mm. yeah. that requires. And it's one of the things that I think the left still is missing. Uh, taking it seriously as well, yeah. right? Like, we're not actually just play-acting here. Like, we're now getting to a point where, you know, what ecological crisis or whatever, there's a number of factors whereby we are no longer allowed this level of kid-acting. It's not social movement, I'm going to put on a black block and look great, right? I've done that, it's fun, <laughs> but it, it's not actually... Cranky! <laughs> <laughs> it's not actually necessarily what we need if we want to change the, fa- uh, the world. The uh, world. <laughs> Sorry. Ofcom. <laughs> we didn't quite finish the yeah. swear there, so it's fine. 
uh, we've managed one below, week with the, the notes from below, the notes from below Bill Grundy moment. <laughs> um, yeah, so maybe one of the one of the things that, that is a lie to this is is to ask you, and you have the the kind of lead essay from the editors on mm. the site, which I think is really sort of sets forth you know, the, the way in which you're inheriting and thinking about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things that, that, you know, that I was thinking you know, is precisely that actually this question of spontaneity that, that crops up on the left so often is, is, you know, in this tradition is one that keeps getting decisively rejected, and I think for good reason. Yes, and I think that's correct, right? And I think... So in terms of like uh, the Anglo-speaking uh, adoption of like operismo or post-operismo autonomy or ideas around that, is people reify and sometimes fetish autonomy, political autonomy, in advance of conditions. So I would argue if you look at like the, uh, the eruptions that happen in Italy in the 60s, along the long 68, for example, the reason why they're able to take po- po- these political autonomous forms is that they had relative control over their technical work, over their technical and their social composition. So if you currently look at the UK in terms of how the class is technically and socially composed, we're incredibly fragmented. And yes, we do have these moments of like, quote unquote, political autonomy. You might have like a delivery strike running for a, a small amount of time. You might have the E15 mums campaign and whatever. But these things, I would argue, can... F- they fail to generalise, right? Because they don't share mass sites of either production or, you know, mass social sites, you know, the same sort of conditions, you know, rent or mortgage differences or whatever. And I think that's maybe one explanation we could offer up for the the emergence of, like, Corbynism, i.e. those people who are already class conscious are looking for some sort of permanent base mm. through which they can, like, aggregate their activity. So I think lots of people are rushing into the base of the Labour Party or the unions around it. Whether that's a good thing, who knows, right? I've got a feeling it probably bloody isn't, right? Um, <laughs> ever but, the optimist. <laughs> ever the optimist, Seth Wheeler. <laughs> ever the grumpy Seth Wheeler. <laughs> but I think, you know, yeah, so I think there's um, an over-reification of autonomy uh, without actually recognising that it has to be predicated on how the class is technically and socially composed first. Tell me about those two concepts, social and technical composition. So technical composition is essentially the organisation of work, right? So it's the organisation of the working class in the workplace. So, you know, this is when Marx is asking about steam and lighting, etc. Um, and particularly with, a, with an attention on the, the uh, what's called the frontier of control in kind of the academic discussion on this. So, like, the points at which... <laughs> the points at which... Um, like one class confronts another class, the, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, and where the, that limit is set within the workplace. And then also within social composition, which is a concept that we're kind of trying to develop here as an addition to the existing class composition framework. We're also interested in those relationships outside the workplace. So um, Marx has this formula early on in Capital of uh, MCM squared, right, which he names the general formula of capital. Um, and he opposes this at one point to CMC, which is commodity, money, commodity, um, but never really discusses CMC. So with this idea of taking things up from the working class perspective, what we've done is we've read that that process, right, where you sell a commodity in order to get money, in order to buy more commodities. In essence, this is the formula of, of proletarian life under capitalism, right? It's the general formula of proletarian reproduction. And only some of those relations are actually work, right? 
right? So the other relations are the purchase of commodity to, commodities to reproduce yourself, like this whole thing of like renting stuff, et cetera, et cetera. And that needs to be understood also from a working class perspective. So mm. occupational communities used to be a massive thing. You know, no one would say the minor strike, pit villages were not important to the minor strike. It's something no person would ever conceivably say. And yet at the same time, there was a structural problem within class composition theory whereby often this stuff didn't come into account. And obviously it's incredibly important how society exists outside of the workplace for how you can struggle within the workplace. And there are struggles outside of the workplace which are working class struggles. I mean, I think, yeah, just in terms of adding to that, I think um, the reason why we were thinking about social composition, this came out of a conversation we had in the very early days of the Notes from Below project. um, And it was kind of, it was born really out of a kind of productive misreading, I think, of... of, of, um, of the of the Italian project and, and kind of the Italian project really just poses technical composition and there's political composition and there's kind of nothing in between sort of how the class is technically composed and then how that links up with how struggle is politically articulated which is kind of put inside that um, and I think we basically wanted to recognise and, and bring this up to date in a sense and, and recognise that you know before workers enter the workplace, they are already dispossessed of the means of production. You know, we don't have that control, um, which means that, you know, things like the ability to buy commodities, food, clothing, um, and, you know, like this, this idea of like the reproduction of labour is a really important question. And the workers' tendency sort of in the 60s and 70s didn't really account for that. It was really focused on the primacy of the fact, well, the workplace, but that was kind of you know, represented in the, in the factory. Yeah, I think that's I think that's correct. And I think, you know, I think one of the problems that workerism had in the Italian context, at least in the 60s and 70s, it was unable to take account, theoretically unable to take account of struggle that was emerging external of the factory. So as such, society writ large presented itself to the workerists in much the same way as the factory had once presented itself to Marx, right, as some sort of, like, hidden and secretive abode. And I think um, the social factory thesis, while obviously an attempt to try and comprehend how society was being reorganised in order to, you know, condition everything towards capitalist production, was also an attempt to bridge this theoretical shortcoming. But I think it can be argued it failed to apply the same rigorous methodology that it had deployed in the factory and instead painted Marxist categories onto struggle uh, without an assessment of, the lev- of leverages or power. And in effect, it stretched Marxian categories, I mean, interestingly, as an explanatory device rather than applying them as an actual tool for study. Mm. Yeah, so I think, I think this is one thing that always interests me in this tradition of thought, which is, on, on the one hand, you get like these increasingly Baroque formulations about you know, uh, the operaio sociale, the, the socialised work of the social work. It doesn't really yeah, translate yeah. very well. But, but, and it's usually a mark of political failure, right? Because yeah. one of the things to say, and one of the things that I think is interesting immediately that you lay out in that, kind of programmatic essay is that so when we look at Italy in the 60s they go okay well the fact this factory is like the advanced most advanced form of capitalism Mm. and if we do something here it will set off a chain reaction and it will go you know everything will be good Mm. um that obviously doesn't work Mm. and they have the experience of massive upsurge in worker militancy and then you have both the institutions of the left so you have 
the parties, but particularly the, the big trade union federations, come in and negotiate the workers' charter. And on that basis, actually, quite a lot of the militancy ebbs. And then on the other hand, you have this kind of desperate attempt to kind of keep it going by producing these increasingly, you know, strange formulations about mm. oh, what the new kind of worker subject is, mm. right? So my question for you is, you talk about this concept of political composition mm. and the leap towards it, mm. which seems... Maybe the sketchiest bit of that essay, yeah. and maybe you don't know it in advance, but what would that look like? So there's an interesting there's an interesting tension within Italian workerism and within the concept of the leap itself, I think. I mean, we mentioned earlier spontaneism, right? Um, so Alquati has a, a fascinating approach to this, where he talks about invisible organisation and just rejects the idea that there is ever a spontaneous strike, right? Anything that you believe is spontaneous, you've simply missed the actual underlying organisation. So take the example of uh, delivery strikes in London. Um, I'm sorry, I never, ever stop going on about delivery. Um, I wish you would. <laughs> so you have a one-week one long strike that comes out of nowhere, and essentially that is generally seen as like, oh, where did these people come from? How are these precarious workers organised? That would be a classical spontaneous strike. Right? But what actually happens is you have people meeting at East London Mosque, you have people meeting at Gabba Raves, mm. and these existing groups set up WhatsApp groups, which then discuss and form a larger collectivity of workers. Workers are slowly added to these WhatsApp groups, and eventually when the strike is called, it's communicated to a number of workers. I mean, we're talking hundreds of workers, almost instantaneously, by those methods. Right? That's not actually spontaneous, it's invisible. Right? So for al you know, that's invisible organisation and that is the leap. Um, whereas Tronti, um, I mean, Tronti, it's worth saying, never writes particularly about workplaces. He never really does a lot of this, you know, workerist stuff. He kind of takes it and works it up mm. politically. Uh, whereas Tronti, yeah, has this kind of more, more mystified notion that we <laughs> leap. I think essentially the leap designates there is some process which often surprises us. So university strikes. In, re in retrospect, you say, all right, there's some very obvious process going on here whereby the people who had the experience of 2010 become politically concentrated mm. in the lower level of academia. They are precarious, they are militant, and actually their political experience comes from an insurrectionary movement. So it's not surprising when they go on strike, they do it pretty hard, right? That makes total sense. But if someone had asked me a month ago if that was the case, I would never have said it, right? Mm -hmm. So the leap designates that there is this surprising element to this always. You can study the composition, but it's never going to be totally predictable. I'm never going to tell you what's going to happen next week, right? I want to think just a little bit more, because I want to move on, but a little bit more about this, this question of social composition. Because it seems to me that a lot of the theoretical work on the left, and I, I use theory in the most kind of expansive way here, right? So it can be kind of hard-headed and systematic and worked out, or it can be like just in the nature of reflection that people mm. undertake. Now, I think there's something to be said for the systematic working out of some of the, some of the problems here, but, but theory is a the thing that's produced by reflection on the world. Mm. So... If you look at the kind of concerns of much kind of left intellectual production, there's a lot of stuff here about things that go that, that are outside of the workplace, right? That are yeah. to do with kind of social identity, that are to do with kind of the various marks that, that differentiate among the class. Mm -hmm. um, how far is it possible to reconcile your notion of social composition with some of these theories? So I'm thinking stuff like intersectionality or these mm -hmm. recognitions that, that there are multiplicities um, in, in the way in, in which class is created? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to try and answer that as best as I can. It's a difficult question. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a loaded question, now. and I think it, you know, it has the potential to get a lot of people's backs up, understandably. The hashtag is Navara FM, by the way. <laughs> um, and I think... So, you know, Marxist feminists have, have, have offered their critiques of intersectionality for a long time now, and that critique is is really based on 
the notion which comes with intersectionality that, you know, intersectionality proposes, like, it basically says that, you know, we, it, we all experience, we all have individual experiences of oppression and they intersect at different moments. Um, and, and I think, really, class in this analysis appears as a thing, as a kind of compartmentalised thing that sometimes encounters race, sometimes encounters genders and produces, you know, like sort of in, interesting, interesting struggles. Um, but it doesn't really, I think, interrogate how, you know, categories like race and gender are historically constituted and the, and the processes that are involved in that. I think you need a, historically, a historical materialist view for that. And I think that, you know, for a long time, historical materialism didn't actually offer much of an avenue for understanding that. Marx didn't, he talked about that social relations of production, but there was kind of, there wasn't really a, a huge body of work for that. Um, but I think post sort of 60s, 70s in Italy, you kind of, there's a way of grasping at something there. And I think our idea of social composition was that, okay, well, you know, yes, we all experience these individual forms of oppression, but at the end of the day, you know, we, the essential condition of capital is that we're all wage labourers, right? And to, I mean, to look at this in, in practice, I mean, you can look at the inquiry that Achille and Lydia two of our co-editors did with the cleaners at LSE, right, where you have an immensely important, I mean, homophobia, racism, sexism, uh, migration status, these are all incredibly important, but they're dealt with as material forces in the workplace, not as abstracted moralistic concepts, right, where we are somehow, you know, we're accounting for this, we're going to put two sentences which name all the phobias, right? Mm. It's about actually looking at how this stuff works materially in order to destroy it and to take destroying it really quite seriously. I'm, I mean, I think that the... the, 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 the the problem that I have with intersectionality at present, and I think, you know, obviously the origins of intersectionality are kind of, you know, it, in black feminism for, well, sort of liberation movements are kind of interesting, but now it's kind of been totally co-opted by the Neoliberal Academy, right? It's been, it, it becomes a discussion about diversity mm -hmm. of oppressions and making sure everybody's included. And kind of class gets totally excluded from that. And class doesn't need to exclude race or gender either. It's just kind of, we need this materialist anchor. We don't have, like, it's kind of lost, I think, at the moment. So obviously, like, there's difference is in intersectionality, right? And I think there's loads of intersectional theory, which is really well developed, nuanced and interesting, and a lot, which is, you know, I think we would all agree is claptrap. Um, I think often there's um, a necessity to try and create chains of equivalence between different forms of oppression. And I think quite often class can be reduced to, its, to a sociological phenomena. Now, I totally buy that I can be patronised by middle class people in pubs. I am all the time. Um, <laughs> we were asked, we were <laughs> asked most, on the picket most... line if we actually came to this university. Well, well, like, what are you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I also had someone tell me recently that I, pref uh, I presented in my clothes as middle class. I mean, you, you couldn't make this sort of stuff up. But um, what I'm saying is, like, you know, in, in its most reductive and unnuanced, uh, lots of people can actually see class as just basically like, um, yeah, sociological category. Mm -hmm. And I think the difference is that class is the one thing... Well, yes, race and gender have very specific roles in how the class is formed and then how the class is also exploited by capital. But class is the only mechanism through which we can actually comprehend capital's movement and understand it. So I think there is like... And overthrow it. And overthrow yeah. it. So it's not to like throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I think class composition 
allows us to have all these sort of like dialogues, recognise the differences in our class, uh, how we experience work differently on the basis of our gender or our race. Um, but as Callum said, we can then talk about how we attack these things materially. Right, and I think one of the things that's striking about reading some of the, the, the stuff on the site is actually the, you know, the, the possibility within these practices of research of actually uh, you know, engaging in a project that isn't individualist yeah. uh, and that, that actually draws experiences together. Mm. Um, and looking at, looking at those things, um, you know, so the, the, the focuses currently on the site are in relatively constrained fields. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me a bit more about, about the stuff you have going on on the site at the moment and, and your areas of research. So at the moment there's, there's loads of stuff on the university, there's stuff uh, from both the academic worker perspective and from the kind of outsourced um, perspective. There's stuff on Deliveroo, there's stuff on um, a number of these different fields. I think at the moment um, it's been constituted mainly by uh, access, right? Like wh- what workplaces do we have access to, right? So we, some of us are supermarket workers, so we have a supermarket button. Some mm. of us rent in Brighton, so we're doing research into how, you know, social composition can provide weapons through housing, right? Um, but that doesn't mean that we necessarily take the selective t- choice that Operaismo did earlier. So, I mean, Operaismo's decision to focus on fiat ca- partly comes out of, I mean, it was access, but they kind of self-theorised it through saying, well, this is what we call determinate abstraction, right? So Coletti comes up with this idea of, you know, Marx's, um, Marx's method in capital is to go um, from little things to big things. This is called determinate abstraction. We can then do this in, in all the stuff that, that we're doing. Um, so we can start at the most advanced point of capital and then go down to something else. Um, Negri identifies this as Lenin's method, um, and it becomes really this idea that one can go from small things to big things. Now, I don't know if I agree with that or not, and I think this is the nice thing about Notes from Below. We can actually say, I don't know because I haven't done the research, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe there is a way to use de- determinate abstraction to work out seriously significant things about the organisation of capital in the UK today by starting from a specific point. But we don't have the hypothesis yet, right? So to go back to Notes from uh, to No Politics Without Inquiry, which we started, there's a wonderful bit where Ed Emery says, oh, you know, I'm so envious of the scientists, right? They have their research teams organised. They mm-hmm. have, And that's exactly how I feel, right? I want to have a really significant collective research project, which begins with a hypothesis, goes out, identifies sites we need to gain access to to find out if that's true or not, and goes and works on it. I think it's probably something to do with, like, a section of the class that is de-skilled, low-wage and precarious, right? Like, the UK has had massive expansion in in what we call absolute surplus value extraction, Mm -hmm. right? And we probably need to pay attention to that. But... We can't do that necessarily. At the moment, we're rediscovering the methods, you know. So so Jamie does work on, on call centres. I do work on Deliveroo. Jess does work on supermarkets because we're there. Mm-hmm. And once we've refined the methods and started to understand, then the project can progress. But we begin from this knowledge that there is an empirical requirement to theory. And if you don't have that requirement, you can't do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's really, it is really worth kind of pronouncing the fact that all of us involved in this project, we have a kind of subjective investment in it. Like as you said, myself, I'm like a supermarket worker. Seth also has done like various like you've done supermarket work. We've done work in um, NHS administration departments, um, camps and stuff of Deliveroo, Jamie call centres. So we're kind of a, we're a very like broad base. We cover a lot, um, but I think we we do have to make account for the fact that at present, if you go onto our site, you will see mostly um, bulletins that you know whether it's cleaners or university workers. The university is the nucleus, right? It is bringing everything together. Um, and I think in terms of, you know, our long-term project, it is to, to, to move beyond that. So I'm obviously particularly interested in the kind of retail work and organising that because you, because obviously 
you know, supermarket and retail work is kind of, it takes up a huge part of rich employment. It's like over the a million figure. Um, In every town, you will find a supermarket. It's almost replaced kind of like the industrial like centres in each town. So it's kind of, you know, if, if we're thinking about, I guess with a lot of sort of like class compositionist stuff, we found that we try to emphasise things that are constantly new. And yes, kind of, you know, we've seen the departure of sort of mass industry, imposition of sort of like supermarkets and warehouse distribution centres that are replacing that. Now, the conditions are different, but there's things there that are very similar and it doesn't require kind of sort of, you know, jettisoning everything from struggles previously, I don't think. I think as well, like, um, we would like to see... And if there's anybody out there listening to this who's actually a worker and not an academic, <laughs> um, you know, we would like to see more, um, you know, we'd like to commission more inquiries or like even, you know, if anybody's listening and would like to consider like, um, you know, creating a bulletin with their fellow co-workers, that's mm. something we'd be happy to aggregate on the site. We want to basically build a platform where we can like generalise and aggregate all these struggles. Now, we're particularly interested, again, because I think we need to take these things seriously, um, we're particularly interested in transport and we're particularly interested in energy. Mm-hmm. And again, I think these are two industries that are probably going to be most affected by Brexit, mm-hmm. right? But, for example, last week, Hinkley C Nuclear Power Station. Yeah. Um, My hometown. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, full of radiation. Yeah. Right. But, um, <laughs> Jessica's currently g- glowing green in the yeah. studio. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, so there was an, an occupation, a spontaneous wildcat by 500 plus. It's really difficult to get the figures. It mm. goes from mm. 500 to 900 workers who were withheld wages because of quote-unquote snow days who basically sat down and blah, whatever. I think what we need is an inquiry in this space because, again, if we're serious, we need to take control of these industries and cripple the economy <laughs> or, you know, run it in our own interests. Yeah. We need to understand this. I mean, I think that the case of, like, Hinkley Point is really interesting. So, obviously, like, first up, it is the most expensive man-made object on earth ever, right? This is a bugbear <laughs> of the British government. Um, now, we're, I think we need to keep our eye on this site because workers were basically threatening to go on strike last last October. I think Unite and GMB are the unions involved in, involved in Hinkley Point and they basically negotiated a pay deal. Um, obviously, there's tensions that have continue to arise hence the, the the sort of wildcat strike and i think this is something that we definitely need to keep our eye on and i think struggles in energy are going to be really important i mean the automotive industry used to be a center of militancy because it concentrated fixed capital right now you're talking about the most expensive object on earth that's quite a lot of fixed capital <laughs> right yeah i want to think just briefly about the ucu strikes through the the lens of your work mm. um and I mean, obviously, there's, there are kind of these incredible things happening. One of the things that's striking to me is, is one, the kind of solidarity between students and uh, UCU uh, organised staff, so not just lecturers, but, but mm. uh, administrative and archival staff as well. Um, and this kind of amazing thing, because, I mean, I mostly, I'm, I'm not involved in universities at the moment, which I'm really thankful Lucky for. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well done. But, um, <laughs> it just means I'm break all the time. Yeah. Um, uh, but but one, it's, it's really fascinating to watch these kind of networks of solidarity, because obviously I, I have a lot of friends who are academics. Mm-hmm. These, these networks of solidarity emerge over the internet, um, and this kind of organising that, that is sort of actually 
mediated through the union, but also not. Like, so, mm. so you have people talking to each other, not through formal channels within unions. Um, and one of the things that, that keeps striking me is, is whether, you know, there, there's a desire for kind of industrial unionism here, right? So the idea that whether or not you would have like, a single union on a campus organising these people. And for most academic workers, this has been the most um, difficult part of the strike, right? It's watching support workers consistently crossing the picket line because they can't afford to take four weeks of strike action or they're scared or Unison and Unite are telling them not to, right? Um, so I think in particular, like, at Sussex, we had a... I, I'm not at Sussex, but I was there, and there was an agreement given by management that anyone could come on strike on the first week of the strike, and a large number of support workers did come out impressively. There were technicians, um, library staff, um, admission staff, just general admin staff, all came out, but went back into work because it wasn't their struggle, right? Like, ultimately, you couldn't cohere them, you couldn't compose the class together because there was an artificial separation enforced by the TUC unions which divided workers in the same workplace into different categories, even though often they share exactly the same pension scheme. Mm -hmm. Right? There's a number of members of Unison who have USS pension schemes mm -hmm. and yet they're not on strike, right? And Unison are now saying, oh, we'll ballot at some point. Like, yeah, I could, I could get Ofcom angry again. Yeah. Like, I do <laughs> not think do that. that is likely. <laughs> I do not think that is likely. So there's obviously there's a clear problem here and there are unions in London which have had incredible successes with with organizing across the board amongst amongst those um outsourced workers you know we're gonna have the largest strike in outsourced worker history in the UK with the RWGB coming mm. up I think it's the 25th and 26th of April yeah. mm. um, and that's a remarkable development at the same time and it indicates the potential indeed the IWGB at Senate House branch have had members not crossing the picket lines I think for the entire four weeks right now these are workers on low wage like often low wage jobs who are, who are staying out for that long that is a remarkable display of solidarity but it's the glaring for me oversight of this strike is that we've failed to make those connections because of the organisational form enforced by the TUC unions, not because mm. of the strength of the class in these workplaces. Yeah. I also think we can't underplay, and I know this is a, a Navara, a Navara favourite, 2010. <laughs> uh, but I, th I don't think we can underplay, like, uh, the role of 2010 militants who probably now are junior career academics mm. or whatever, who, are now, who now find themselves in quite a lot of the more militant UCU branches. But also I think... Um, so the attempted brokered deal this week by Sally Hunt, class traitor. <laughs> uh, Sally out. Uh, Sally, Sally out. Sally, hashtag taxi for Sally. Um, basically, I think exposed the very flabby nature of this union. And mm. I think actually increasingly, and I think what, you know, between the next wave of strike action, I think one of the things that people should concentrate on is pushing their efforts into further democratising their branches, which have basically just been like uh, running a complete democratic deficit for ages because there's no necessity to really be involved mm. in them. And I think the vast majority of academics have chosen um, th their union as basically defence of their job rather than actually like a living, yeah. breathing political vehicle. And I think that's what's tr been transformed in the last four weeks. And it's a really good example of how com class composition analysis is actually a useful tool like in reality, right? So like this whole thing of 2010, you've seen they cohered, that generation, the Navara generation in some ways, right? Cohered around... <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> well, no, most of the listeners of Navara FM, many of them would have been on strike. I, I reckon it's if true. you took a ballot, 50% of the people listening to this right now would have been on strike at some <laughs> point. Um, so that means that, like, they've cohered around the university, like, we have cohered around the university, um, and that means that gradually we've massified in this area which you've had like the massive expansion of insecure teaching and so now if you look at early career academics phd students people doing you know one yearly contracts many of them have had ex experience of an intense political struggle mm. against the state and capital and also have an antagonistic relationship with the unions because they saw just how useless the unions were when our entire livelihoods were under assault yeah i mean i think 
That's totally correct. I think the, the moment of 2010, 2011 is really important. It's playing out in a variety of ways. I mean, you see it around sort of, you see it around the Corbyn project, but you're also, you know, seeing it at this moment as well. But I think we have to be wary. I think when we think about strikes going, potentially going on into next term, it's kind of, well, that's set in place now. They've mm. basically announced 14 days um, strike action next term. Now, I think in terms of student solidarity, there's going to be some obstacles here. And the main reason I think there's going to be obstacles is because the people now at university, the undergraduates, right, they have accepted the debt. Mm. They were not involved in the political struggles of 2010, 2011. That doesn't mean there's there's no opportunity for kind of, you know, radicalisation or bring them into that struggle, but it is kind of... It's a different moment and we have to make account for that. I think to, I agree with that. And I think outside of those unions with like a history of militancy uh, in the sort of fallow period between 2010 and the present, I think you're absolutely correct to say there is like lots and lots of work, uh, worker student solidarity. I think on the campuses up and down the country that haven't maintained those sort of relationships, there is hostility, right? And I think for us to have some sort of like ongoing victory here, we need to begin, the UCU need to begin to be talking about expanding the demands of the struggle. It can't stay just around pensions. It also has to, you know, maybe they need to be discussing, like, the cost of tuition, mm. reducing the cost of tuition, et cetera, et cetera. I want to move on from the pension strike, but before I do, I believe Seth has a shout-out. Oh, yeah. To yeah, a comrade so, uh, whose birthday it is today. Yeah, so <laughs> happy birthday to my bae, my BFF, Alessio Lungi, who's celebrating his 58th birthday today. <laughs> happy birthday, mate. OK, well, so one of the things that's emerging in this discussion um, is a question of the institutions. And this is a vexatious question, I think, for militants throughout the history of the kind of method that you're inheriting. Uh, you know, the history of Italian workerism is one of uh, real antipathy uh, to, to the unions, while also... Uh, often a failure to recognise that actually the kind of mutual dependence on it. There's a, a, a relatively early on in, in 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 the history of Italian workerism, there is a quite famous riot um, in Piazza Statuto. It's after uh, the UIL, the the kind of reactionary trade union confederation, sells out a strike, and there's a demonstration, and it turns into a very aggressive. Uh, demonstration. Um, Good. And, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, so uh, one of the later groups, uh, Poteri Operaio, said, uh, Piazza Statuto was our founding congress, <laughs> um, which I've always liked as a line. But uh, one of the theorists we talked about, Steraniero Pansieri, says, uh, he warns at the time, he's, he's not condemning it, but he's warning at the time of this kind of, he says, a biological hatred of left institutions. And so this raises for me the, the problem of politics itself, mm. which is one that kind of dogs workerism. And and I mean, like, the question of politics in particular is a kind of autonomous sphere, which, it, you know, which is its form in bourgeois democracy. Mm. Um, so one reading of, of no politics without inquiry is that inquiry is a predicate of political formulation. So uh, the form of political organisation ought to be generated by our understanding of class formation, class struggle. Mm. But the lines of that, that, that implication often converge into a vanishing point, right? So, so what kind of political organisation is suggested by these forms of inquiry? This can be tentative, it doesn't have to be... I, I wonder if this is where we all disagree. <laughs> I think it probably but, is. Um... <laughs> But I, again, you know, re referring back to something I, I suggested earlier, if there was a larger political project in Oates from Below, it would be the possibility of identifying organic cadre, organic organic members of the class who were prepared to take like leadership positions or whatever. 
Well, I can imagine, say we have this wild success with this aggregation of bulletins, flight of fantasy, you know, who knows? And maybe in a year's time, we're able to bring those people together. Maybe people in United Voices, IWGB, mm. the rank and file of ACORN, etc. Get those people together and discuss what is the political project behind this? Surely it cannot just be like your material conditions. What else is on top of this? That, for me, would be a political regroupment. A, because it would be led by workers. And it wouldn't be the usual lefty thing of let's regroup and then just discuss pointlessly theory for the next 10 years and not make any decisions with the class. That would be, for me, the possibility of a regroupment and a political regroupment. How that happens, I don't know. Mm. I mean, I think, uh, just adding to I think that, you know, the main purpose of Notes from Below is to create a kind of rank-and-file caucus in the UK, which Mm. at the moment doesn't really exist. It exists at at local levels, but there's nothing that's really coordinated. So um, I think if you, I mean, if you look to the US, you have like Labour notes. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I I imagine notes from below being a kind of contemporaneous sort of project to that. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, yeah, building sort of a rank and file militancy. Because, you know, as we've seen with the, the, the UCU strike, we have to be, we do have to be wary of leadership. I'm not sure if biological hatred is, is, the, <laughs> is the correct term. But um, I think, you know, that we, in terms of this, this dispute, there's, you know, leadership has been willing to basically create a deal unrepresentative of the membership, which would potentially have sold us out if it was accepted. She gave us a very short window it was totally an attempted sellout. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, let's just make it as clear as that. What about the Labour Party? Okay, this is hard. <laughs> <laughs> so, for me, I mean, I've written stuff in Navarra about like this idea of Corbynism from below, right? Mm-hmm. So I think Corbynism presents a certain opportunity because, in a period of total decomposition, it does just act as a point of accumulation, right? Um, it's also being worth being, you know, in the spirit of inquiry, being totally honest about what's going on in the Labour Party at the moment, which is the vast majority of those Labour members are inactive. Labour membership is falling because people who bought their membership to get in when Corbyn was like, you know, we needed to vote him in, are now falling out of membership, right? Because they can't see the point of continuing paying for a party they never go to the meetings to, right? My uh, local Labour war has 700 members and so this is a council hall it's tiny and it's got 700 members it's got the density to be a serious organisation you know if it were to be the CNT and a barrio committee um, St Peter's and North Lane of Brighton would be would be really up there <laughs> but instead what it's got is, is meetings of 10 people mm-hmm. right um, and when you hear discussions of oh we need to do community organising it's often something brought up in these labour circles there's no real comprehension of what that is right it's, it's partly I think because there's very little um, interest in going into just random workplaces where the outcome may be in six months plus time and putting work in, right? Mm-hmm. And we need to think about, you know, if Corbynism is an opportunity for political forces to assemble, actually I think the interest of inquiry is to go into the base of this, see what the political composition is there, and then try and drag people into self-organisation. Because actually, you know, this sounds old, this sounds like unfashionable at the moment, but I do think the self-organisation of the working class is the only thing that will bring around the end of capitalism. Good. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I agree. Um, I want to ask a final question, and and you'll have to keep it brief, unfortunately. Um, And that question for me, because I, I was thinking about the changes to global capitalism and what would be most interesting where for you the most important and interesting zones and fields of capitalist exploitation say where do you really want to conduct an inquiry daventry 
Yeah, Daventry. Okay, so it's a town in the Midlands uh, near kind of rugby, uh, major logistical centre in the UK. So you look at it, um, it's a little triangle-shaped town on each corner. It's got huge warehouses. Go look at it on um, satellite Google Maps. And it it, it is an industrial centre. It is like the centre of Manchester in 1848, right? But it's out in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the Midlands. Um, And at the moment, there's an inquiry I'm involved in where there's the possibility of a shifting up the chain, right, of going from the workplace, um, which is a a food service workplace in a, a major city, and going up one link and getting back to the logistics that would be fascinating army barracks mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah primarily yeah, yeah. Uh, supermarkets retail yeah. work I think that's the most yeah. obvious and easiest thing anyone in a town so you know we've got strike bulletins uh, not strike bulletins but bulletins have been created by supermarket workers the next issue is due out this month we basically want people to go out and distribute those and start the conversation because at the moment in retail work there is very little conversational organisation mm-hmm. yeah. victory to the working class death to the middle class <laughs> We'll leave it there. All right. Thank you for joining me this week. This has been Navara FM. Go check out notes from below online. And we'll be back in the same time, same place next week. Bye-bye. This show is brought to you by Navara Media. To find articles, videos and more audio content like this, head to navaramedia.com. If you've particularly enjoyed this podcast and encourage others to listen to it, why not head to iTunes and as well as subscribing, leave us a review. Navara Media can exist only thanks to the generosity of our subscribers and supporters. If you have the means, please consider subscribing at support.navaramedia.com. As well as helping us continue to produce regular content, subscribers will also receive priority access to events, as well as promotions throughout the year. For regular updates, follow us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Navara Media, media for a different politics.